0: Hi, and welcome to Ones and Twos, F.P.'s economics podcast. Every week we take two data points. We use them to try to explain the world. I'm Cameron Abadi, F.P.'s deputy editor based in Berlin, Germany. Uh, Adam Twos, as always, is with us from New York. Hi, Adam. Hi, Kim. Okay, so our second data point will be on the uh, Winter Olympics, which is coming to an end. So stick around for that. But first, as always, we're going to do something drawn from the news. The number from the news this week is 92,000. That is the number of donations that truckers protesting in Canada have received as of earlier this week, totaling some $8 million. Those protests have been going on for about three weeks. Tonight, the trucker blockade in Canada is growing, with vaccine mandate protests closing border crossings in three provinces, bordering Michigan, North Dakota, and Montana. Detroit, the Biden administration tells CBS News that they are working with their Canadian counterparts to resolve these border blockages. And there's a-
1: Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau declaring a national emergency now to end the trucker protests and to halt anyone coming from the U.S., to join the protests here 's our chief justice uh, the truckers
0: in Canada have managed to pretty much shut down the city of Ottawa, clogging its city streets, creating an atmosphere that's partly menacing, partly kind of seems like a party um, with hot tubs appearing on some streets, but really uh the ostensible reason for the protests are vaccine mandates that the Canadian government has imposed on truckers crossing over the border really anyone crossing the Canadian border, and more generally, just public health policies that the Canadian government has imposed, which the truckers claim has negatively affected their livelihood. Meanwhile, these protests are doing real economic damage. It's not just the traffic jams that are preventing people from going to work. It's also directly impeding commerce, uh, preventing goods from making it to stores in Canada, but more importantly, disrupting international supply chains that span over the U.S.-Canada border. The Canadian government is slow to respond. At first, it seemed like a jurisdictional issue, but now it it seems like there's been some concern whether the government has the capacity to respond. I thought we could try to make sense of this, Adam, in a broader context. Uh, First off, is this protest best thought of as a labor dispute? Is this a working class kind of protesting general economic conditions using whatever means they have at their disposal and by the same token did the trucker protests show us something about how labor strikes always work that they're kind of ultimately about who commands public sympathy here
1: well that's certainly what Tucker Carlson the um you know right-wing host of Fox News would have you believe so this is this is Carlson uh last week uh, Canada's working class has finally rebelled after years of relentless abuse Truck drivers are threatening to topple Justin Trudeau's creepy little government with their big rigs, and they may succeed. Uh, I mean, even Carlson, however, doesn't claim it's a bread and butter labor dispute. I mean, he calls it the most successful human rights demonstration in the generation. Uh, you know, the slogan of the, the the truckers is freedom. So, you know, red blooded North Americans are going to to defend this against creepy liberals like Fancy Man Trudeau. That seems to me the kind of the general reading. I mean, it's basically nonsense. I mean, the blockades seem to be a rogue movement. They've been disowned by the Canadian Trucking Alliance and Canada's Teamsters. About 90% of Canadian truck drivers are vaccinated. Comparatively, few of them are protesting. On the bridge to Detroit, it's mainly amateurs, not with big rigs, but pickup trucks, by all accounts. Um, and the protests really are anti-vax as much as anything else. Um, the impact of all of this does indeed fall on working-class Americans and Canadians, and crucially, you know what's at stake in the border between Canada and um, the US is is the auto industry, which which just straddles the line on between Detroit and Windsor. Uh, meanwhile, talking about creepy, I mean, the, the really creepy thing, as you say in the intro, is is the funding flow and who's making the donations. So. Millions of dollars have flowed in from around the world of kind of more or less excited you know right wing um, enthusiasm. Um, a large slice of this is coming from the u s so about about forty percent of the funding flow appears to be coming from the u s and a wildly disproportionate share of it is in the form of crypto and um, They set up a particular funding page this isn 't to say, of course, that everyone who is into Bitcoin is into this kind of protest, but on the other hand it 's not entirely out of character that you get donations of you know, coins with let freedom ring, brothers of the north, cryptocurrency is the future. Uh, Behind the scenes, not so much uh, on the border to the US, but in Ottawa, it does seem as though the whole thing is in fact being coordinated to quite a considerable degree. This has a little bit more of a January 6th flavour than would be entirely comfortable. I think there is, uh, you know, there's large scale communication between those protesting and coordination centres in more comfortable digs in hotels in Ottawa. And you've got a a kind of coalition there of right wing strategists, ex-military, ex-cops who are, you know, putting on this show really as a way of embarrassing Trudeau's government.
0: So what does this episode reveal about the role that truckers play in national and international economic life? I mean, have truckers always just been able to shut down an economy like this? Are there precedents for them doing something like this?
1: well they are they are a vital bit of the logistical system certainly particularly in north america you know whether they can really shut down the economy that's that's um i think perhaps putting it too strongly but they can certainly put on the show and in the 70s they you know they really did i mean two times uh, around the oil crises really in 73 in you know around the first opec shock and then in 79 there were these very large scale you know convoy style go slows on on the interstates there was some striking there was serious harassment of drivers that attempted to break the blockades there's in fact shooting incidents i mean it isn't limited to the us though it definitely has a north american flavor i mean in the, in the uk in 2000 2005 and 7 i think there were efforts by truckers to protest gas prices petrol prices in in the In the UK, I mean, all of it, though, if you think back in history, you know, if you think back in labor history, if one one does insert this into a history of labor, I mean, it's a pale shadow of the of the heyday of organized labor. Right. You know, in an economy that's organized around coal, if you get a combination of miners, railway workers and dock workers, what in British labor history is called the Triple Alliance to come out on strike, that really does paralyze, you know, not just the economy, but all of society. That's what the syndicalists, so the syndicalists being the kind of socialists who believe in and, you know, organizing the economy around direct workers' control, that was always their fantasy. And their weapon was always the general strike. And in the general strike, what really matters is mine workers, railway workers, and dockers, because they do all the heavy circulation. So I think of this as a real, a kind of, um, almost like a kind of rather kitsch version of that vision of the transport workers controlling the world yeah i mean to get back to the supply chains i was surprised
0: that so much of the u.s auto industry relies on supply chains that run over a single bridge connecting the u.s and canada i mean are industrial supply chains really not more robust than that just one blocked bridge one collapsed bridge one blocked port that could all just lead to a spiraling crisis
1: yeah, it's, it's kind of in the logic, right? Because if you think about supply chain economics as being about breaking down the process into the most efficient subunits, then in a sense, there's always going to be essentially one best way of doing that. And if you set the issue of resilience aside, then everything is going to end up being channeled through that one route. So in, in the UK, it's the channel tunnel, the channel ports. And this, this bridge that was got blocked between Detroit and Windsor, the Ambassador Bridge, it carries that one bridge 25% of all merchandise trade between the US and Canada. And, you know, they are each other's, as far as I remember, they're each other's most major major trading partners. I mean, it carries more trucks than cars, the bridge, 10,000 trucks per day. And get this, the, the bridge is actually privately owned. Um, You know, know, obviously Canada and the United States need a connection at this point, and there'd been talks about it from the 1860s onwards. But it was the Detroit auto industry, with Henry Ford taking a big lead in this in the 20s, that commissioned the building of the bridge. I mean, Ford pronounced at the time, you know, the only way things can be done today is private business. So there's a weird kind of privatized quality to this North American connection. They commissioned McClintick Marshall, the people who built the Golden Gate Bridge in in, california uh, to build it for them and um the bridge is actually it's it's just kind of mind-bending it's privately owned it actually belongs to an individual um Manuel Maroon, he was called, he died recently. And he, of course, had a huge interest in lobbying to prevent the construction of a competitor publicly funded bridge. I mean, so much so that he actually pushed to have an amendment to the Constitution of the state of Michigan that would have made it virtually impossible for them to get planning permission to build a bridge. In fact, now in 2018, in the face of like vicious opposition from from the private interests here, he, they, the, on both sides, work began on the new bridge, uh, so-called Gordy uh, Howe Bridge, which is going to be opened, I think, in 2024. It's named after a, a hockey player, a Canadian who played in Detroit. Um, but, you know, finally, at that point, the public powers might establish control over this vital interchange, which at this point is essentially a private sector archery between uh, the North American economies. Yeah,
0: I mean, I, it seems like part of the problem was, when it came to clearing these trucks, that, you know, the tow trucks, according to news reports, weren't complying with the orders to move them off the road to begin with. Presumably, the tow truck drivers were sympathetic with the protesting truckers. But that got me thinking, I mean, do governments really not have sufficient heavy equipment of their own at their disposal? Do they really need to outsource this to private tow trucks? and? In that sense, are, are huge trucks that are always
1: driving around our roads, are they a, a kind of latent national security threat? Yeah, they're definitely a national security threat. I mean, I, I happen to know that after the, the big attacks in Britain with um, rogue trucks and truck bombs, the British Security Services actually had a deal with the major vehicle rental businesses and credit card companies in the UK to monitor every single person leasing a large vehicle. And they would do identity checks profiling, and if you came up as suspicious, you would you know be tracked because absolutely these are large physical objects that move at high speed and can do very serious damage, or on the other hand, um, you know you can blockade with them. You know you have to have quite a strong stomach as a politician to actually send the army in to tow people's private property away who are engaged. You know, in the end, it's a form of civil disobedience. Of course, it's a large scale civil disobedience using large objects. But nevertheless, that's what it is. So Trudeau didn't want to do that. So, yes, then they turned to the private contractors. And it's not so much that they are necessarily sympathetic to the truckers, except that they are themselves in a genuinely cutthroat competition for business. The haulage companies that do this. In fact, so much so that there have been like turf wars gang style in, in Canada over the, the truck towing business. And so none of them, of course, want to risk their reputations with the truckers in being, you know, the, the strike breakers hmm. that haul this stuff away. Turns out that in the end, the tiebreaker is the fact. And this really, you know, wait for this. The City of Ottawa Transport Commission, Transpo, actually has two tow trucks <laughs> and these appear to be the tie-breaking tools of you know the legitimate authority of the canadian state that it can actually send in to haul away these giant rigs that are blocking up the nation's capital so there you go you heard it on ones and twos oc transpo the uh, the ottawa's it's ottawa's commission will come get you if you get stuck okay then otherwise just to finish with a kind of general question
0: is being a, a trucker these days a good job? I mean, what qualities does the profession select for right now? And and are truckers fairly compensated in the free market these days?
1: It's a kind of classic easy come, easy go kind of market in the labor market in North America and in the United States. I mean, earnings really vary, and, and that's I think the decisive thing because it's a highly cyclical business. It goes from boom to bust to shortage to excess capacity really quickly, because it's relatively easy to get into. Um You need to take a commercial driver 's license basically, um which could take anywhere between you know six months and as little as three weeks if you really go at it hard and then you either set yourself up with your own rig or you drive for somebody else if you 're driving with your own rig, you really are absorbing a lot of risk because the fixed costs are what they are they could be sixty seventy eighty hundred thousand dollars a year. And then you know so it depends on whether you get the business in a good year. you might be netting um maybe a hundred thousand dollars that seems to be about the maximum I've seen quoted anywhere, and you could be making losses of a heavy kind in a bad year if you're driving for somebody else, the salaries seem to range between about forty five thousand dollars and eighteen ninety for very experienced drivers so it's you know it's good working class work um and it's something that folks can get into with with basic education and you know um but it's it's a tough, it's clearly a, you know incredibly tough way of earning a living. And it's very dangerous fundamentally, right? If you're driving a big rig, uh, they can be quite unstable in the wrong uh, kind of weather conditions. I had a brother-in-law once who actually earned a living doing it. And he described his terror of driving on the big bridges coming in uh, around New York because the lanes are so narrow. So there's, hmm. it's really hmm. very nerve wracking work.
0: Yeah, I guess, I mean, there is a kind of romance of being on the road away from home somehow. That's a kind of like fundamental American kind of myth of the open road. But yeah, okay, we will leave it there. But we will come back with a data point on the Olympics. Hi, this show is sponsored by Better. Help. So there's something I've been meaning to get off my chest, and it has to do with uh, little league. My son is on a uh, little league baseball team here in Berlin, and the coach is—he's great. He's extremely devoted to the games, the practices. He also expects a lot of devotion from the parents, and I often end up feeling like I'm dropping the ball. I, you know, not literally, but you know, figuratively in terms of getting my son to practice on time, making sure he's prepared for practices, etc. And uh, I've been called out a few times. No, I, I've been more than a few times. Uh, pretty regularly, I am called out by this coach in, 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 in the form of text messages uh, admonishing me. And I've been meaning to tell the coach that, you know, life is busy and I can't always uh, hold up my end of the bargain. And, 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 and it would be helpful if he would not be so pushy about everything. But I do not say that yet. Instead, I carry it around in my chest and this becomes a stressor. Uh, maybe you all have stressors of your own kind that you're carrying around, big or small. What we all should know is that if we keep these stressors bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively in all sorts of ways. And That is where therapy comes in. Therapy can be a safe space to get things off your chest. You can figure out uh, how to work through whatever it is that's weighing you down. And that's just skimming the surface of what therapy can do. And it isn't just for those who have experienced major trauma. It's for everyone, whether you have a baseball coach in your life you've been meaning to talk to, or another loved one. If you are thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It is entirely online. It is designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Visit betterhelp.com slash ones twos today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot slash, ones, twos. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Okay, the next data point is 91. That is the number of countries participating in the ongoing Winter Olympics in Beijing, China. There's a lot of reason to love the Olympics. Uh, also, reasons to be wary morning,
1: made a diplomatic boycott by the u.s and severe covid restrictions for a lot of athletes Russia- and everything has been scaled back quite significantly because of covid but there was still so much energy you
0: know, back in 2008- i'm generally in the the love camp i've been watching a lot of the olympics on television with my kids how about you adam do you watch the olympics
1: I do. I catch them in the evenings for sure. Yeah, I know. I've been, I, I did, what was I watching? I was watching the snowboarding the other night. Ice skating, I'm just too, I'm too anxious. <laughs> the, fear, <laughs> the fear of them falling is too intense. But somehow with snowboarders, I don't care. I kind of quite enjoy the spills.
0: I feel that way about the, the ski jumpers. The ski jumping actually makes me nervous. But, you know, anyway, God bless that there's someone out there willing to. Leap off of mountains, but anyway, okay. Let's start by looking at the economics of hosting the Olympics. Who exactly are the economic winners and the losers in in hosting this kind of event?
1: Well, first and foremost, the winners are the IOC. Um, they make billions in TV rights. Um, NBC hmm. alone has paid seven point seven billion for the broadcasting rights in the U.S. for the for the Olympics down to twenty thirty two. It sold you a know, billion dollar plus in ads for the Tokyo Games over the summer. For the host cities, on the other hand, it's notoriously far more ambiguous. I mean, the costs vary hugely depending on which games you look at, how ambitious they were. The most expensive ever, I reckon, to have been these winter games in Sochi and in in southern Russia, which I think Putin splurged $50 billion on. The summer games in Rio de Janeiro came in at 20 billion. Um, The Beijing Olympics in 2008, 45 billion. But often in those ambitious programs, it's more like a kind of national calling card or kind of debutante ball for for countries presenting themselves on the world stage. This is true all the way back in the 60s when Japan hosted in 64, Germany in 72. China in 2008, I think this is really notable there. Putting on a show, the world suddenly is recognising that China is you know, grown in this spectacular way. China's spending on the Olympics this year is much more modest. The the Winter Olympics, they say, costing them only 3.9 billion. Folks think it's going to run over that considerably, apart from anything else, because they need to manufacture huge amounts of fake snow, for which you require like very complicated and expensive plumbing, apparently. So these figures are eye-watering. I mean, even putting in a bid like you know for going in for the for the competition costs between 50 and 150 million dollars in consultancy fees so many countries many cities have just mm. pulled back from doing this security costs are exorbitant now since 9-11 they've they've basically shot into the billion dollar age, between a billion and a two billions a year. And then you're left with a white elephant, you know, the notorious white elephant facilities, um, you know, even iconic architectural landmarks like Beijing's Bird's Nest Stadium cost half a billion dollars to build is now largely unused. The argument in favor of doing it is always there's going to be tourist revenue, which is true. And lots of people come to see the show but this is where the economists' idea of opportunity cost is key, because most of the host cities will receive large amounts of tourist volume anyway. And London, which is probably the most telling in this respect, in 2012, you know, hosted what by most people's accounts was a successful show, a successful Olympics. But attendance at sites in London, like the British Museum, was down 20% that year, that summer. West End theatres closed shows, and overall Britain's tourism flow in August 2012 was 5% lower than normal. Because people are put off by the idea of you know going to Britain during the Olympics, they think it'll be more expensive, so they divert to other locations. It's a very mixed bag. Hmm.
0: So it sounds like the winners are basically the IOC and construction firms. Exactly. And, uh, yeah, and like okay.
1: notoriously, like you know, the corruption involved in this is quite spectacular at times. Okay. Well, obviously, right now we're
0: talking about the Winter Olympics, and as I was saying, when I'm I've been watching on television and. One thing that jumps out at me is that the Winter Olympics are less diverse than the Summer Olympics. I mean, is there a way to quantify, I don't know, in developmental terms, just how elitist the Winter Olympics are compared to the Summer Olympics?
1: It's pretty striking. I mean, you're right. I mean, we started out with 91 as our number. Mm. That's the number of countries that taking part, 2,800 competitors roughly. That contrasts with 206 countries that took part in the Summer Olympics last year. 11,483 athletes. It's a completely different ballpark. And if you look at the medals, it's even more extreme. So in the Winter Olympics, basically the medals are entirely hogged by the US, East Asia, so China, Japan, South Korea, Russia, and then huge overrepresentation of Europe. It's staggering. I mean, in the Winter Olympics, Norway is a superpower. You know, Austria... Uh, Switzerland. I think in some categories of bobsleigh, there's never, ever been a competition in which a German wasn't on the podium in one form or another. <laughs> well, I mean, no. it's, it's pretty staggering. Um, I don't believe a tropical country competitor has ever won a medal in the Winter Olympics, ever, ever, ever. I mean, it's worth saying, of course. So, yes, winter sports, very much a kind of uh, elite privilege of the Northern Hemisphere or Southern Hemisphere developed countries. It is true, of course, also that in the Summer Olympics, there's a strong correlation between GDP and medals. Mm. So it's the big countries with the big economies uh, and the rich countries that, generally speaking, hog the medals. The only real outlier in that as a significant Olympic force is Jamaica, which wins in track and field vastly more uh, medals than you would expect, given its GDP and its GDP per capita. That really begs
0: the question of whether the Winter Olympics is even deserving of the name Olympics. Yeah, it's sort of, it is a kind of such a a minority of the world participating. But anyway, I guess maybe spoils the fun to think about that too much. Uh, Another thing I'm thinking about while watching on TV is about world records. I mean, it seems like every Olympics, there are some new world records. I mean, obviously, by definition, (laughs) world records are an improvement over what came before, but It got me thinking whether athletes as a whole improve over time too. I mean, is there reason to think that every successive generation of athletes is better than the generations that came before? And then if so, do world records even make sense? I mean, are athletes only really ever competing against
1: their own cohort, not really the past? You'd think so. I mean, this is a really fascinating question because there's no doubt in the broad measures of the global population that over time with the economic growth general human physical condition has improved we live longer we grow taller babies are born heavier every single measure of, of human physical performance on average improves over time um, in societies which are experiencing economic growth and we see that as well in um, athletic performance so there is a steady improvement in say 100 meter times or whatever and that has no doubt to do in part with nutrition and sports science and training. But the skeptics point out that there is a very significant technological factor in here. So especially with running, for instance, modern tracks are much better than the old cinder tracks. They add one to 2% in terms of performance. Mm. So if you allow for that, you know, rather than 1300 people, men rather having broken the four minute mile barrier, the first man to break that was in 1954. Perhaps only 500 men ever have, once you allow for the fact that the track has improved. Um, The the absolutely essential thing here, though, is that when you're talking about high-performance athletes, you're not talking about the average, right? You're talking about absolutely extreme outliers in the distribution of human attributes. And we've only been doing modern performance sports for about 120 years the first modern Olympics was 1896. And the basic question therefore is how good have we gotten over the last 126 years in finding the truly extraordinary, naturally talented physical specimens in the human population? That's the basic question here. So we do find better performers, but it's essentially in that genetics. It's called amongst sports scientists, the big bang of body types. So if you're an athletics trainer and you're looking to develop, say, a gymnast, you're looking for somebody who is very powerful, has explosive speed, and is very short. So female athletes have shrunk from an average of 5'3 decades ago to 4'9 now. Meanwhile, why is it a benefit
0: to be shorter in that sense? Because you have more...
1: Aerodynamics. Oh, okay. Aerodynamics. It's all about having the most compact body possible. This is the miracle of Hussein Bolt, is that no man his size should be able to run as fast as he does because yeah. the aerodynamic resistance is the crucial thing. In basketball, on the other hand, you want to be huge. So it's an astonishing fact that... One in six of all men in the United States who are over than seven feet tall currently play in the NBA. (laughs) One in six, right? So, So it's also a statistical fact that one in about every 300 people has abnormally high oxygen carrying capacity due to the composition of their blood and their lung capacity. So the essence really of finding high achieving athletes is to find those people and make them into, give them the training facilities, give them the nutrition they need. That's where we're going to get these extraordinary performances from. And the longer we do this and the more people are sucked up into these athletics trainings programs, the more extraordinary the performance we're going to see. Once upon a time, literally, you know, if you think about the the beau ideal of of uh, you know sportsmanship, it was a well balanced physique of a, a man six foot three tall, not hmm. too tall, not too short, not too stout, right? That actually is not how you get optimum performance. You get optimum performance by finding the right human body types for the discipline that you're asking them to perform in, and it's all about that. Um, collective search for the very unusual specimens amongst us.
0: Wow, that is that is fascinating. So our improvement at sports is really a systemic improvement at surfacing the <laughs> athletes.
1: I mean this is see, look what happened with China. I mean once China got serious about this, of course there's all sorts of suspicions about doping and everything else. But the other thing they did was simply say, look, we have one-sixth of humanity. There must be whatever it is you're asking for, there's mm. gonna be somebody in our group is exceptional at it. You know, it's that famous thing about if you're one in a million in China, that means there's, you know, there's 1400 of you, (laughs) uh, you know, so, so it's a question of developing those pipelines.
0: Okay, wow, I won't think about this the same way again. That's interesting. Okay, so now what about the economics of winning a medal at the Olympics? I mean, are there distinct payoffs that come from winning any medal? I mean, or from winning a gold versus winning a, a silver
1: yeah, I mean, the American Olympic Federation has a sponsor-backed, privately donation-backed system for rewarding its athletes. So in the current games, they are going to get $37,500 for gold, I think, 22500 for silver and 15000 for bronze. And those are modest by global standards. I mean, Turkey is offering 10 times that. They've never, ever had anyone win a medal in the Winter Olympics, so they're quite desperate. Hong Kong is offering over 600000 for somebody who can bring back a medal. Mm-hmm. So... You know, those are stakes, but by the standards of modern high performance activities, whether we're talking about the arts or sports, they're pretty modest stakes. Obviously, the standout personalities in the Olympic game, you know, they really do do well. I mean, Simone Biles is probably pulling in about five million dollars in endorsements. Uh, Katie Ledecky, you know, the historically good swimmer. She has contracts with, amongst others, Adidas um, and Ralph Lauren, which are worth probably about three million Usain Bolt is like in the NBA league. I mean, he's, his sponsorship deals run to tens of millions of dollars. And Michael Phelps is often is thought to have, you know, a net worth of about $80 million. So the people in the Superstar League uh, are, you know, compete with other superstar um, sports uh, men and women. The sobering fact, however, that f- is that for the vast majority of Olympic athletes, professional or semi-professional sports uh, uh, do not pay off. Um Surveys of, uh, globally of athletes, professional athletes, suggest that about half of them are financially precarious. The track and field stipends for the current crop of American athletes run to a modest $1,000 a month. This is not a way to get rich. In fact, it's not even a way to earn a living. People have to have side gigs of all types. And broadly speaking, folks retire from highly competitive athletics, not because they're physically declining so much as they just can't balance the trade-offs anymore. It just doesn't make sense. For the medals themselves, I mean, the gold Olympic medals are actually not gold. They're gold-plated uh, silver. They contain about 1% pure gold. If you melted one down at current gold prices, you'd get about $800 for it. The bronze one would probably net you about $4 to $5. They do end up on the market. You can buy yourself uh, an Olympic medal, if you fancied. On, uh, a first-place silver medal from the first modern Olympics, they didn't have gold medals then, so... A first place medal from 1896 recently auctioned um, for 180 thousand dollars, but top dollar, highest ever, I think, for Olympic memorabilia went quite rightfully to one of the medals that Jesse Owens won in 1936, humiliating Hitler at the Berlin Games, where you know a black man just demonstrated his athletic prowess. That was uh, picked up by a lucky collector for 1.5 million dollars at auction. Hmm.
0: I mean, I hadn't thought about this, but I, I kind of do think that the gold medals should be made out of gold. I don't know what would it cost to make a gold. What would actually a, a I think real that would be a different be ballpark. Yeah, they'd have to be really yeah. small. I think. <laughs> You know, yeah. you, still I do think the principle of it I mean I don't know
1: you you yeah. said they're made out of silver that they're covered in gold we should do an episode on the composition of major athletic medals like you know the Wimbledon <laughs> didn't Rafa Nadal always used to pose and he would he would put it between his teeth and kind of bite yeah. down to see whether it was gold I think we should do an episode on the actual value of major sports trophies
0: and yeah exactly maybe some of them are made out of chocolate or something I don't know But anyway, uh, to end here, let's say someone, despite all of the economic reasons you mentioned, Adam, why it's not worth pursuing one of these Olympic sports, let's say someone nevertheless wanted to qualify for the Olympics. If you had the single-minded goal from early on of qualifying for the Olympics, which sport, from a
1: cost-benefit
0: perspective, would you suggest choosing?
1: I think probably broadly speaking like start in a small poor country and try try and qualify in something like track and field probably. I mean the talent pool is big but you know basically all told 2176 people qualified for track and field in the summer olympics. That's a that's a very substantial number of people. I mean if you're you could pursue a different strategy which would be to go super niche and if you went that route, then there's no doubt that BMX freestyle cycling is the way to go because there were only 19 competitors at the uh, Summer Olympics, and I figure that's probably the the least competition that you could face um, in any of the major disciplines. Okay, BMX
0: biking. Okay, okay, I will keep that in mind as my kids get older. Maybe, maybe that's what I'll push them towards. We talked about extracurricular activities a couple weeks ago so maybe this is the one that's cut out for them Anyway we will leave it there for now That's it for another episode of Ones and twos thanks as always to my co-host Adam twos listeners as always we like hearing your feedback please email us at podcasts at foreignpolicy.com or tweet us at ones and twos pod. Remember, that's twos as in Adam's name, T-O-O-Z-E. And of course, uh, remember to follow and review us uh, on your favorite podcast app. Ones and Twos is written and edited by me, Cameron Abadi, along with Adam Twos. It's produced by Laura ross tellum and Rob Sachs. Our social media manager is Claudia Tatey. The executive editor of FP Podcast is Dan Efron. Thank you very much for listening, and we will see you back in your feed next week.